morning. Now, I know that video might have been a little hard to see. We are currently working on uh, solutions to uh, block the sunlight uh, from those top windows to make the screen more uh, visible. Uh, I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could be here uh, with us at, at Hope. Um, if you are new or visiting, please uh, be sure to fill out those karmic cards so that we know how to pray for you, uh, answer any questions that you might have about who we are, uh, what we are about, and about the various ministries uh, that we partake in. Uh, also, uh, our doctrine class today will be the last doctrine class uh, for this year. We're going to finish up on the topic of heaven and hell. So if heaven and hell is of some interest, please uh, stay for that. Um, and that will be following our uh, fellowship time after the service. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace today. Thank you for keeping us warm amid the cold. Thank you for allowing us to gather once again as a body um, in unity that we can give praise, um, hear your word, um, and give thanks for all that you've done and all that you will do, Father. Help us hear your word. Help us humbly submit ourselves before you this morning. May your spirit convict us, correct us, discipline, and teach us this morning. And may we be used by you as you continue to grow us and mature us as disciples of Christ, Father, that you will glorify yourself through us. And we ask this, Father, uh, for the sake of your kingdom, for your gospel, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so today um, we are in the last part of Matthew. We are in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So this is our last sermon on the series of Matthew. And, you know, for you, maybe it's just another sermon. For me, it's, it's special because it's the first, it's my first official sermon series uh, that I'm actually wrapping up through a, a book. So for me, it's it's, I'm kind of excited, and you know, I know it's only took a little over a year to go through Matthew, but I'm excited to go into a new book, another book, uh, which will be, we'll start in the Epistles of John, uh, starting uh, the first Sunday in January. We have Jared up on Sunday, myself on Christmas Eve, and then we'll have a uh, special topic on the last Sunday of December. So, here we are at the Great Commission of uh, Matthew, Great Commission of the Gospel. Uh, we talked about the resurrection uh, last week, and now we have Jesus appearing on the mountain. Um, and this Great Commission that Jesus gives, um, and, and it's not just to the disciples, but it's given to the entire church as a whole. And this Great Commission, in a lot of ways, is similar to the creation mandate of Genesis 1. If you remember in Genesis 1, the creation mandate that God gives Adam and Eve is to uh, reproduce, fill the earth, subdue it, and, and take care of it. Now, with the new covenant, God gives the disciples of church a similar commandment of reproduce and fill the earth, except the reproduction and filling the earth is of making disciples, reproduce disciples, and go to the ends of the earth with these disciples in this process of filling the earth. Now, this command that Jesus gives is what guides the church and oftentimes is understood as the mission of the church. Many churches nowadays, if you ask them what their mission or vision is, often will have something that is, it's either the Great Commission or some, another, the Great Commission worded in a different way. Because it's through the Great Commission that the church is built, the kingdom is advanced. And again, here, yes, in, this, in our passage today, Jesus is talking specifically to the apostles, to the eleven. But it's not limited to the apostles. 
nor is the Great Commission limited to pastors or ministry leaders. It's given to all disciples, to all believers of the church. Now, of course, how you and I obey our fulfillment, our obedience to the Great Commission, that is going to vary between where we are and how we are gifted and so forth. But there are some basic principles of this commission that all of us, we, we all follow, we all obey, and we all share in them. So let's go ahead and read our passage for today. Again, that's Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, they should be in the seats around you, but please go ahead and turn there. Any passages outside of our main passage will be provided for you on the screen above. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, before we dive into the commission uh, given in verses 18 to 20, let's take care of some details in verses 16 through 17. We have the 11 11 remaining apostles, right? We know what happened to Judas. He, He committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus, so now there's not 12, there's only 11 of them. And they're with Jesus, and they're on this mountain in Galilee. And what mountain? We're not really sure, but it's a, it's a mountain that apparently Jesus had, had designated at some point to his disciples. This is where we're going to meet, and this is where they are. And the disciples, when they see him, they worship him. They bow down at his feet, and they worship them, but not all of them, not completely anyway, because as Matthew tells us, some doubted. Now, what, why would Matthew talk about they doubted, and what does he, exact, what does he exactly mean by doubted? When we look at this word in the Greek, this doubt is rooted in a sense of hesitation, right? It's not so much that they don't believe that this is Jesus, but they're hesitating. This doubt is rooted in hesitating, but why they hesitate, well, the text doesn't tell us. But we can probably speculate a little bit, but again, this isn't in, in, the, in the text, but we can speculate. It could be perhaps they hesitated in their worship, wondering how Jesus might act, knowing that Jesus knows that they fled, that they left them. And maybe Peter was one of the ones that hesitated, knowing that he explicitly denied Jesus three times. And he knows that Jesus knows this, so maybe they're hesitant to bow down and worship him, just filling him out and seeing how he is going to treat them. Or maybe, because Jesus, now that he's resurrected and he's in his glorified body, he looks a little different. And he doesn't look exactly the same that he did before the crucifixion. And so they're not quite sure what's going on here. But we don't know. All we know is that Matthew just says, some of them doubted. And that's all we have to work with. But now let's look at verses 18 through 20. And this is where we will be camping out uh, for this morning in our passage. Now, if you like to mark up your Bibles, and you haven't marked up these verses yet, I'll give you some suggestions here. Underline the four instances of all in verses 18 through 20, where it says all authority, all nations, 
all commandments or, or something similar. Mine has everything I have commanded. And the fourth is all the days, or your version might have always. Then circle the verbs baptizing and teaching. So circle the verbs baptizing and teaching. Highlight the verb go. If you highlight whatever, just do whatever. I don't mark up my Bible, so I'm 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 really just kind of going with it here. And then highlight and underline make disciples. All right? So whatever you do to go, do to make disciples as well, but give make disciples an extra thing because it's it's a little bit more extra than go. So in these verses, we have four key verbs here. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Make disciples is one word in the Greek. And so the question here is, which one is the main verb? In the English, it can be kind of hard to understand which one is the key verb. In the Greek, though, it's, it's easy, it's plain. Make disciples is the only verb among these four that is in the imperative mood. And when we say imperative, we mean command. It's a command. It's a verb that carries, it's a, it's a command. That's what it is. It's straight up, it's a command. So make disciples is explicitly clear here as the command and the focus of these verses. Now, there is another verb I haven't mentioned, and that's the verb of behold or see, look, remember, in verse 20. That also is in the imperative mood, but we'll talk about that in our final point. But what about these other three verbs, go, baptize, and teach? Well, these three, they're all participles, and they all modify, they all qualify make disciples and what make disciples looks like. But before we address these three verbs, which we will, we must first address the first key point that Jesus makes in his commission. And that is the issue, the point of authority, and how all authority has been given to Jesus to give this commission. In verse 18, Jesus makes it clear that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, has been given to him. Now remember, the disciples, Jesus has just been crucified, and Jesus has just been risen. So the resurrection is right there in the disciples' mind. So why would they question this? And then they shouldn't. And I mean, it makes sense. He's, he's been resurrected because, as we talked about last week, the Father has vindicated him. The Father said, there was no sin on this man. He bore the sin. He bore your sins. He was an innocent man. And so he has been raised from the dead as Jesus said he would. Remember, the angel said he is risen as he said he would be. So the raising of Jesus verifies, vindicates him, gives validity to all of his teachings. And now that he has been raised from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And and we must not just gloss over this phrase as, okay, Jesus is authoritative, right? We've heard that before. We get it, but we have to understand the significance of it, especially in light of the commission of which he gives the disciples. Because not only does it motivate us to obey the Great Commission, but it gives weight to the Great Commission. This authority that's behind the commission is why we call it great to begin with. Example, if the, if the President of the United States, regardless of how you feel about him right now, but if the President of the United States wrote a letter asking you to do something that's more significant than me writing you a letter asking you to do something, right? The, the office, that position, that, the authority that comes to that letter gives that task, regardless of what the task is, gives it weight. It gives it significance. And to disobey that task, that order, 
when such a weight is behind it, it's more significant than if you disobeyed a letter that I write. So that's just the example of, of why, how the authority given to Jesus gives weight to the Great Commission. Craig Blomberg r- remarks on this. Because of this authority, Jesus has the right to issue his followers their marching orders. But he also has the ability to help them carry out those orders. That's key there, right? He, not only does he have the authority to give the orders, but he has the authority and power to help us fulfill those orders. John Stott expands it uh, further in the book One Race, One Gospel, One Task. He writes, The fundamental basis of all Christian missionary enterprise is the universal authority of Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. If the authority of Jesus were circumscribed on earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations, we would have no mandate to present him to the nations as the Lord and Savior of the world. If the authority of Jesus were limited in heaven, if he had not decisively overthrown the principalities and powers, we might still proclaim him to the nations, but we would never be able to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ, dare we go to all nations, and only because all authority in heaven as well is his, have we any hope of success? So this is why we obey, fully recognizing Jesus Christ to be who he is, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, uh, who died on, the cr- died on the cross and was resurrected, and that all authority uh, has been given to him, even the authority to judge us on the last day has been given to him. This is why we seek to obey him. And our obedience to him It's not rooted in our experience. It's not rooted in how we feel about it or how we feel it in our hearts. It doesn't matter what you think about the Great Commission. You can't just say, well, I don't really feel the Great Commission calling inside of me. I don't don't, don't feel it here. That doesn't play a role. It's a simple command that's been given, and we're called to obey it. His authority doesn't only give us the power to do the task successfully, though. As I said, it gives us the ability, it gives us the weight and the significance. And so when we talk about this, we must not think this is the Great Commission is just one of the many commands given by Jesus. But ultimately, it's the driving command given by Jesus. And that the fulfillment of the Great Commission will help us to fulfill all the commands of Jesus, as we will see in a bit. And so let's go ahead and start breaking down the Great Commission and and what it looks like to fulfill this by looking at these verbs. And we'll look at go, since it's the first one listed. So the verb go, as I mentioned before, it's a participle, but it's not just a regular participle. Uh, I don't want to get too Greek geeky here, uh, but the, the way that the verb go here is used in the sentence um, the way that it has the, the voice, it's, it's tense, it's mood, um, and where it is in relation to the Greek command of make disciples, this verb go carries the sense of command from make disciples upon itself. It's called a circumstantial uh, participle. So since make disciples is command, go also has the sense of being an imperative as well. So we have to make sure that we understand this. Um, so make sure. When we talk about go, sometimes you hear pastors say, 
you are to make disciples as you go. And, and I think that doesn't make sense of it well enough, right? If my wife were to say, hey, honey, go and make me a sandwich, she's not asking me, hey, as you go and as you see it fit and as the opportunity presents itself, make me a sandwich. No, the reason I am going, the whole purpose I am going is to make a sandwich. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he's saying, the whole reason you're going is to make disciples. You're not going for any other reason. You're going to make disciples. It's not, well, just as it's convenient or as you feel it in your heart or as you're living your life, make disciples. That doesn't do what he's saying justice. And I think when we understand it, I mean, I think when you read the read in the English, and we allow ourselves to read the text plainly. I think initially we get that. Go and make disciples. Go and make a sandwich. Go and mop the floor. It's not, you don't mop the floor as you're going. You go with the intention of mopping the floor. But we like to find excuses not to make disciples. So I think for some reason, at some point in the church, somebody started saying, well, it's as, it's as you're going. And I'll be honest, I used to believe this myself. All right, I used to be ignorant in that, and I used to, it, it sounded good, it made it more convenient that we make disciples as we go, so if we don't, it's okay, as opportunities present themselves, we'll just make them. No, we live our lives in such a way that when we wake up in the morning, you wake up with a great commission, with these words in your head, and you're waking up thinking, I'm waking up to make disciples. This is why I exist. As a believer in Christ, this is why I'm here on earth. I'm not here to raise a, a, a good family. I'm not here to have the perfect kids. I'm not here to get that promotion. I'm not here to start up that nonprofit and do what I'm here to make disciples. But where do we make these disciples? Well, Jesus helps us. He says, make disciples of all nations, right? And we don't get hung up on that. Again, I think out of convenience, we like to think all nations. Well, America is a Christian nation, so no need to make disciples here. We need to make disciples beyond our borders. But we don't ignore our own backyards for foreign places. This expression of all nations, it's, it's a limit. It's a purpose. It's an end. It's not the only place. It's not a small scope. It's everywhere. And we see this in another statement by Jesus in Acts 1.8. Again, right before his ascension, he's with his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth or to the ends of the earth. So we as a church, as families, when we think about making disciples, we need to start local in our own backyards, in our own, our own Jerusalem, so to speak, and then our neighboring communities even those who are ethnically and socioeconomically different from us for whatever reasons. That would be our Samaria. And then we go beyond that to the ends of the earth. Now, foreign missions are great. They are essential. And it is a healthy thing for churches to be a part of. But not when they happen at the expense of the souls of our neighbors or our coworkers. Our first mission field is the one that's in front of us that we can see not the one that we can't see. This is why in our prayer list, if you've noticed this week in our prayer request, weekly uh, prayer letter, we listed the streets, um, especially the streets that surrounded the church. And we're praying over the streets because we care about West Salem. This is our first mission field. So we're going to start praying for West Salem uh, 
in their streets by name. And if you know families and people on these streets when they come up, pray for them by name. The video we watched, if you could see it, showed just how making disciples is supposed to work, how sharing the gospel should be contagious and how it can't just happen from the pulpit, but when it happens from those in the pews who do the majority of the witnessing in the community, how it can spread. But let me spell this out for us a little bit more. Again, this is why we exist. It's not for that promotion, not to get your kids to clean their rooms, make sure they get on the honor roll, or make sure that they're a, a, a varsity letter athlete. That's not, why, that's not why they exist. It's not why you exist. Not as a believer. If you, if you want to serve the world and love the things of the world, then chase those things first. And it's not that you can't do those things. Absolutely you can, but not at the expense of making disciples. It's not even, we don't even exist to feed the poor. We don't exist to clothe the naked or meet whatever need is out there in the world. Again, it's about to make disciples. The question is how? How we do this forms and shapes our entire day. It forms your week. It forms your month. It forms your five and ten year goals. It forms your new year resolutions if you've do that year after year. If you do that, your New Year resolution should be about how can I be a better disciple maker? They, they should somehow be pouring into that in some manner. Now, to clarify, of course, you can make disciples as you feed the poor. You can make disciples as you clothe the naked and so on. But you have to be intentional in it. We must not confuse or think that social action equals gospel proclamation. Social action does not equal gospel proclamation. Sharing love or loving on others is not gospel proclamation, especially in a society that doesn't even know what love is. R.A. Torrey summarizes it this way. We must also bear in mind that the primary purpose of our work is not to get people to join the church or to give up their bad habits or to do anything else than this, to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, the one who bore their sins in his own body on the tree, and the one through whom they can have immediate and entire forgiveness. That's gospel proclamation. Obeying the Great Commission is gospel proclamation, as we will see in a moment, that the baptizing and the teaching, in order to do those, you proclaim the gospel. So Jesus tells us, continues on after he tells us to go and make disciples what obeying this command looks like and what is involved and so now we move to baptizing and we will see what he's talking about baptizing when disciples are made they are baptized i think this this command is clearly stated here i don't think there's there's much confusion as to what jesus is saying here clearly says that they are to be baptized, and not just baptized into anything, but baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Namely, that they are baptized into a Trinitarian faith. So if you've ever wondered about the doctrine of the Trinity, why is it significant? Well, this is one of the reasons. Because Jesus says that you have to be baptized into a Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so if you don't know the Trinity or don't believe it, then what were you baptized into? 
And this is why when I baptize or people ask to be baptized, it's one of the first questions we deal with. After we deal with, you know, their understanding that they're saved and they were centered and they're saved by the blood of Christ and they believe on that name, is do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And we address that issue. Uh, nobody should be baptized into something of which they do not understand. And it's not that you need to understand the doctrine of the Trinity completely or fully, but you need to have some kind of grasp, some working knowledge of what Scripture says about it. And baptism is, is commanded not so that you can have some awesome experience, right? This isn't like, our faith isn't about experiences, and so being baptized isn't about, man, you're going to get baptized. Everyone's going to be there. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to make a really cool video about it. Maybe we'll have a drone and we'll see you coming in the water, coming out of the water. You have a cool t-shirt on and we'll go, yeah. That's not what baptism's about. You can do that. That's fine. But that's not the highlight of baptism. It's not about the experience. You can get baptized and you can be like, I feel exactly the same as I did before. Okay. You know, that, that, that's fine. Salvation experience is one thing, and even your salvation experience can be somewhat subtle depending on your background and how you're saved, but your baptism isn't about the experience. First off, it's about obedience, right? That's, it's commanded. It's commanded. Clear as day. Now, you can make it more about experience to a point. Like, I encourage people who are baptized to, to fast. Uh, at least 24 hours before, because I think the fasting, you don't have to, but I think the fasting adds weight. It adds weight to that day, because it's good to look back on your baptism in times of struggle and doubt and seasons of darkness, and I think if you make the day of baptism something that is more significant by fasting, it gives it more weight, and I, th- I think that's healthy, and I think that's fine, but again, we we get baptized because it's commanded. And for most of us in America, it's the easiest command of Scripture. All we have to do is get wet. That's all we have to do. So, but for whatever idolatrous, sinful reason, many in the church, and I don't understand this, many in the church reject the idea of the necessity of baptism. Despite what we have just read this morning, despite Jesus clearly stating Baptism is part of being a disciple. And it's part of being a disciple for the second reason. Identity. Identity. In some places where the church is persecuted, you can claim being a Christian all you want until you actually get baptized. Right? And I I can remember when I talked about baptism and church membership over the summer, I shared the story of the uh, Iraqi woman who she got baptized, her Muslim husband View, was there, viewed the whole thing, and he was really amazed by just the unity, the fellowship of everyone there during the baptism and, and, and the joy that was found there. And he went off and, and, and told uh, the, his wife's parents about everything that happened. And from that moment on, her and him were put on a, on a hit list. The lives were being sought because of the baptism. It wasn't about the faith, it was about the baptism. Because once you get baptized, you are publicly announcing to the world I belong to Jesus Christ. I am his, and you're taking it to that next level. But before that, in many places, especially where the church is persecuted, eh, whatever, if you're not baptized, eh. But once you get baptized, it's game on. And I wish that we in America would just take baptism, have as seriously as our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who die 
they die for the sake of baptism. They risk their lives. Not, if they've been baptized, they'll risk their lives to witness a baptism. Baptism is part of the Great Commission. It's part of being a disciple of Christ. This is in part where the whole, that our relationship with Christ, we, we, when we talk about our relationship with Christ, you'll see things, it's about relationship. It's about having that personal relationship with Christ. We have to be careful with that. As much as we do have a personal relationship with Christ, that personal relationship with Christ is never meant to be in isolation or in solitude from the body of Christ. It's a, it's a relationship that's meant to be experienced within the community of believers. And hence, the baptism part. You're, it's a public profession of faith with witnesses who are going to come alongside and hold you accountable to the teaching of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce uh, writes on the Great Commission in regards to the baptism, saying this is both natural and necessary. If a person is truly converted, he or she will want to join with other similarly converted people. So when we look at baptism in relation to making disciples, we're making disciples to be part of the body of Christ, to be part of something. And if you are not baptizing, you're not making disciples. Plain and simple. Great commission. You have to baptize them. It's part of being obedient to God. You have to baptize. There is no gray area in this verse alone. And it's not just this verse that talks about baptism. Baptism is throughout the New Testament. Peter, first sermon. It was, it was the application point. If there was like a takeaway from his sermon, his, his takeaway was repent and be baptized. It wasn't repent and read these books and do these ten things and, and have your quiet time. It was repent and be baptized. This is why I harp on baptism so much, especially in a day and age where baptism is left on the side of the road as some accessory that you can either do or not do. It doesn't really matter. It's up to you. It's how you feel about it. And this is why I desire that baptism is required of members. If membership is to be understood in part as a means of discipleship and sanctification, excuse me, how can we have members who willfully refuse to be baptized? It's one thing if you don't know and you haven't been educated. That's fine. That's, that's, why, that's, that's why the churches exist, to educate you on that. But if you do know and you willfully refuse to be baptized, that's an issue. Now, you might be saying, well, what's the necessity of membership? And that's just a totally different discussion altogether. But if we are to have members, which we do, why not make them be required to be baptized? D.A. Carson remarks, and I completely agree with him on this, the New Testament can scarcely conceive of a disciple who is not baptized or is not instructed. Indeed, the force of this command is to make Jesus' disciples responsible for making disciples of others, a task that is characterized by baptism and instruction. And we see this throughout the early church, not just the New Testament, but when you read the early church letters and you study the church history, baptism is always tied with membership to the church, both local and universal. If you weren't baptized, then people would be like, well, you're not really one of us. We have to get you baptized. That's why oftentimes baptisms were preceded with catechisms, teachings, and instructions to fulfill the other part of this great commission. So to the task of instruction, let us go. After Jesus tells us we have to be baptized, 
or we are to baptize those of whom we make disciples, he tells us that we must teach them as well. Uh, at the annual, uh, the fall conference for our district um, in October, uh, the topic was about the necessity or the centrality of the gospel on Sunday mornings and in regards to making disciples. And I had a conversation with a pastor there who mentioned he's, he's been a pastor far longer than I, I have. I think he's been a pastor for almost as I am old. And he mentioned that this was new to him, that the gospel is central to Sunday morning. The gospel is central to making disciples because the way that he was brought up was the gospel was to open the door to non-believers. They hear the gospel, they walk in, and you don't need the gospel anymore. And that's incredibly unfortunate because that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. That's a, that's a heresy. But apparently it's pretty prevalent through our churches. When we make disciples, you don't stop at evangelism. Evangelism is a part of making disciples, but it's a very small part. It's, it's, it's step one of a lifetime of commitment. And the gospel, as, as you hear me quite often, and I hope every Sunday you hear some form of this, we need the gospel daily. It's how we walk in the light. The flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. We need to be reminded of the gospel, the fullness of it, as often as possible. It's one of the roles and functions of the body of Christ. It's why we praise him. We praise him not because of how we feel. We praise him because we know the truth and we know what the truth means for us. And from that, we pray that will form our feelings and our emotions that glorifies him. Again, Craig Blomberg, he comments when he breaks down the baptism teaching the Great Commission, he does so like this. Speaking of these two commands, The first of these will be a once-for-all, decisive initiation into Christian community. Once and for all. You don't get rebaptized, you get baptized once. If you feel like you need to, you partake in communion. And we'll talk about communion on another uh, Sunday. The second proves a perennially incomplete, lifelong task. I mean, you get baptized, but when you get baptized into the faith, you're getting baptized into a commitment to learn, to be equipped, to be fed the word of God as you feed yourself, as you learn how to feed yourself, and as you get fed by those who are mature in the faith who can teach you and walk with you. He goes on and says, so too, in regards to the church, the ministries of the church overall must reflect a healthy balance of outreach and inreach. In other words, evangelism must be holistic in nature. Right? It's not simply enough to do a crusade of uh, revival gatherings and altar calls or to hand out tracts and have people repeat some special prayer after you. When one is called to a life of Christ, it doesn't take five or ten seconds. It takes their whole life. It's a lifelong journey to salvation. This is why Jesus and Luke tells us you need to consider the cost. This isn't some small thing. It's not the easiest thing you're going to do. It's going to be the hardest thing you're going to do. But that's okay, and we'll talk about that at the end. So what must we teach then if Jesus says that the disciples we make must be taught? Do we teach just the New Testament? Do we teach just the Old Testament? What parts do we teach? Well, in verse 20, he says they are to obey to observe. They are to keep all, everything that he has commanded them. And notice the part before that, before he, he 
he qualifies the scope of everything or all the things that he's commanded. Before that, what we are to teach specifically is obedience. It's not simply enough to teach what Jesus has said, but we have to teach how to obey what Jesus has said. And that includes the Great Commission. That includes the need for baptism, the observance of communion, and so forth. Therefore, if you are not making disciples, therefore you are not making disciples if you simply teach the content of scriptures without any expectations of life change. You can't teach scripture and be like, well, if you feel like it or not, you obey it. If you really want to be motivated and passionate about who Christ is, but you don't have to be, if you really want to be on fire for him, you would obey it. As if being on fire is like a special Christian trait that you can have or something. I, I, don't, I don't get it. When you, when you come to Christ, you, you obey the scriptures, whether you're on fire or, or not. You just obey scriptures. I think we've got to be careful of that language as if it's reserved for special people who somehow God ignites with the Holy Spirit and they're on fire for them. All of us who are called to Christ, we, we should be on, on fire in the sense of it, but recognizing that, you know, sometimes it just, does, it just doesn't burn the way that we want it to burn. Those of you who have been married for any length of time, understand, hey, this marriage, it's not on fire like it was when I first locked eyes with this person, right? But that doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't work or that the love isn't there. Again, it's not about our feelings. I lost my place. So if persecution, oh, let me back up. This, okay, yeah, this is where church membership and church discipline come into play. Because without it, especially in America, we wouldn't be able to hold anyone accountable in a society where you're free to believe what you want. You can believe whatever you want about Jesus. But if persecution existed, we wouldn't need formal membership, right? If persecution existed for being obedient to scriptures, we wouldn't need formal membership because I could tell just by how you live your life, just by how you did life and and how you talked and what you did. I could tell. But yet we live in a time and place where you can claim Jesus to be be your Lord and Savior and at the same time willfully and unashamedly cling to whatever sin or idolatrous belief that you have for the sake of how you feel or for the sake of convenience or because you have a family member who, who, who is um, in a homosexual marriage and you don't want to get in the way of that because after all they, they love one another where scripture is saying no you need to you need to face up to the sin. You need to call it out. You need to rebuke, especially if you love them. If you know they're going to hell, love them enough to share the good news with them. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be hard. Tears will probably be shed. But what's better, tears being shed or wonderful memories at Christmas time, but they all end up in hell anyway. Think about what's at stake here. This expectation of us to teach all that Jesus has commanded, and especially in a society where we have so-called brothers and sisters in Christ who preach that certain sins are okay, and as long as you love everyone, you're going to be saved, as if the act of love is how we're saved, when it's the blood of Christ that saves, it's not the act of love that saves. This is why I prefer to teach through books rather than do topical series. Topical series have their place, and they can be of benefit, but if I were to pick the topic every week on what I wanted to preach, 
probably want to go through some of the harder stuff, especially some of the harder uh, subject matter that we've talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. By going through book by book, I'm just, this is what Jesus has given us, and all I'm doing, I'm just the messenger, I'm just giving you the word of God, and I rest, I find security and safety in that authority, that's his word talking, and it's not my opinion. I don't come up here to give you my opinion. If it's my opinion, you're wasting your time, I'm wasting my time, I'm up here to give you the word of God, as it has been delivered and handed down to us by the apostles through the ages. Some of these teachings, yes, they are hard for us to hear. They can be hard to preach. But they're necessary. Again, this is the Great Commission. I know this is only two verses. But these two verses are like the two verses of the New Testament. They map everything out for us. So this expectation of teaching everything that Jesus has commanded and to be obedient to it poses a question for all of us. If teaching to obey all that Christ has commanded is expected in the process of making disciples, are we ourselves desiring to know and to obey all that Christ has commanded? If we are not, are we a disciple? Are we actually a disciple of Christ if we ourselves are not obeying what we know, what we know? If you don't know yet, and we're trying to learn, that's fine. But if if what you know now, if you're not obedient to it, does that make you a disciple? And when we go through the epistles of John, especially 1 John, assurance of salvation is going to be the key focus there. How do we know we're saved? How do I know? And John's going to help us understand that. But I think even today, this morning, would it not be safe to say that if it is required to make a disciple, that they learn how to obey all that's commanded in order to be a disciple, but yet it's not evident in our own lives. Therefore, I think we can apply that maybe, maybe, the same for certain, but maybe I'm not a disciple. Where is the assurance if we lack obedience to the commands of Jesus? And how can we expect to make disciples if we ourselves are not faithful disciples? Remember, disciple, disciple making is a process of replication, right? You're replicating who you are onto somebody else. Whatever you are, you will replicate. If you're a heretic, you will make more heretics. But perhaps... Maybe you're thinking, well, this is, this is hard to do. This is too much. And in a society, in families, where the actual, not made-up teachings of Jesus, but the actual teachings of Jesus, the actual words of Scripture, what they tell us not to do, those things are celebrated as being brave and they're it's virtuosis. They're acts of de- independence and like, look at you, you're strong, but you're clearly going against the teaching of God. How are, we to, how are we to do this? Even within the church, in America, where the church has become fat, heavy, lazy, apathetic, where the sheep and the goats mingle all the time, the wheat and the tares are together every Sunday, serving in leadership positions together. Even within the church, we have hostility, especially if you believe in some of the teachings of Scripture. How are we to do this? Well, Jesus doesn't give this great commission and just tells them, good luck, right? That's not what he says. Go, make disciples, teach them all that I've said, even though I know it's going to create some issues and people are going to flog you and persecute you because of it. Just go, I'll see you guys later. No. In verse 20, 
but halfway through of verse 20, we have the Greek word here, which is idu. And idu here meaning behold, look, see, like pay attention to what I'm about to say. In other words, remember this. So Jesus says, remember this. And he tells us, remember, I will be with you for all the days until the end of the day, age. I am with you always. This is no small thing, and we must not just skip over like, yeah, Jesus is with us. No, he is with you in this. And not just like in some like hashtag sense or my thoughts are with you, but it's all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, and that authority, all the authority in heaven, all the authority on earth is with you in this. Because I am with you in this. And this goes well with Matthew's gospel because it connects the end of Matthew's gospel with the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew one twenty three, when he tells us that Jesus shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God didn't just come to the earth only to leave us. He came to dwell among us forever. This is the good news of Christmas, that he abides with us. And this is actually going to be the focus, that's the topic of Christmas Eve services here, that God abides in all that entails for us as believers. See, whatever comes your way, whatever opposition presents itself to you, Jesus is with you. And, a, and as he tells us in John 14 and John 16, he has sent the Spirit, the Advocate, the Paraclete, the Comforter, the Counselor, to dwell within us, to give us words when we are questioned, to give us confidence and faith, and that when we are alone weeping, when we are in pain, whether it's physical or emotional, because our family relationships are broken over the fact that we believe what Jesus has taught. Maybe it's spiritual pain. Jesus is there. And when we struggle to speak truth and love to our family members because they do cling to the ways of the world, or they just, maybe they don't, but maybe they're just lost. Maybe it's in their anger, or it's in their passions or lusts, or it's in their addictions. We can pray, even when we don't know what to pray. Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. You don't need some magic prayer book to know how to pray. Prayer of Jabez isn't going to help you. That was a prayer for Jabez. You need your own prayer, and the Spirit will guide you in that. Or if you're just silence and your heart's before God, the Spirit will speak for you. Or when we try to rebuke, reprove, and correct those who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but they refuse to submit to the teachings of Christ, and they call us Pharisees or misogynistic or spiritually abusive and manipulative, or they threaten us, whether that comes from inside the church or outside the church, know that Christ is interceding for you. Romans 8, 33, 35, just a few verses later. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who also is interceding for us, right? That's a double intercession. The Spirit intercedes for us and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the right hand of God interceding for us as well. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And Paul goes on and he tells us absolutely not. Nothing does. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ because he is with us until the end of the age. Jesus gave this great commission so that we could partake in the great eternal work of building his church. Again, this is why we live and breathe as believers. If you lack purpose in your life, this is it. This is it. When you wake up, when you're having that midlife crisis, what am I doing with my life? As a believer, you can say, I'm making disciples, or at least I should be. And so go, make disciples, recognizing that Jesus Christ, he's, he's giving you the power, the ability to do so, the authority to do so. Whatever happens to the American government, whatever happens to the economy, it doesn't matter. The mission stays the same. Make disciples. It's, it's, it's a job that has eternal security associated with it, quite literally. This task is given to all the saints, and it's all the saints, right? No one who is part of the church is exempt from this. Whatever you are physically and mentally capable of doing, you do. Now, some of you, because of where you are in life and, and your physical capabilities, you can't do much, but you can pray. You can pray. God knows what you can do. You know what you can do. And whatever you do, maybe it's just taking care of a loved one, and that's all you can do. You can make disciples that way just by being a model, just by being a witness of what, what enduring love looks like and what faithfulness looks like. We do what we are able to do. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? You want to know it, this is it. I mean, it's, it's make disciples. That's... I know, it's a shocker. It's, it's surprising, right? Like, you don't need to buy a whole book to find out what's the will of my life. It's right here. Make disciples. Now, what that looks like, that's another story. And we could talk about that. That's why, we, that's why we're part of church. That's why we gather. This is why I exist. At least the position that I'm feeling right now exists. It's to equip the saints for the building up of the church to help you understand what does this look like. That's why the elders are here and the deacons and so forth. And this will be hard. It will be trying. At times, it can even be dangerous. You might lose a job promotion. Making disciples in order to help plan a church might call, um, cause you to move and leave. So you know Joel Fischel, who, who spoke here a few weeks ago from his sending church in northern Illinois. He's planning a church in La Crosse. He had a family move from northern Illinois to La Crosse. Why? To plan a church. It wasn't because of a job or anything like that. It was to plan a church to help advance the kingdom, to make disciples. But as always, despite the difficulties that lie ahead in this task, as Jesus says, remember, he is with us until the end of the age. The one who was crucified for our sins, the risen Son of God, who is now at the right hand of the Almighty, he is with us. And if we live to make disciples for the sake of his gospel, when he returns with the full glory of all the angels and all the glory of his Father, he will not be ashamed of us. So let us take heart. Let us be courage. Let us go. Let us make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them to obey all the commandments that Jesus has given us. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these words of Jesus, Father. Thank you that you've given us such a clear task before us. If it wasn't clear in our lives, Father, help it be clear. Help it become a priority in our lives. Help it be the thing of which we shape how we do family, how we do marriage, how we do uh, friendships and school and, and, and work. Help us make all of that revolve around this one priority of making disciples, recognizing that this is an expectation for all of us, whether we're new to the faith or we've been part of the faith for many decades, Father. Just help us in this. Continue to teach us. Help us repent of our sins, especially those of apathy and laziness. Um, help us take control of our time. Uh, help us um, be wise with our time, recognizing that, that there is a time for rest. There is a time to enjoy uh, the fruits of our labors, Father, to enjoy those Sabbaths that you give us. Help us be wise in that. But help us not hold anything uh, in the position of idolatry or cling to uh, any sinful desires uh, just for the sake of convenience or, or anything, Father. Just help us walk in the light, be in the light, uh, to know your will. Allow us to be transformed by your word daily. Continue to draw us to it. Continue to draw us to one another. Help us have unity within this body, Father. Not just unity that puts fellowship above truth, but a unity that celebrates the truth, where we rebuke one another, we correct one another in love and gentleness, practicing what real love is. Help us do that. Help us be a church that is faithful to that task so that the world may know that we are your disciples by how we love one another, and how we discipline one another. Father, just help us do all these things for your glory. Be with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not here this morning, who are at home, uh, those who are ill, those who are struggling, maybe uh, the depression just got to them too much today, Father. Be with them. May your spirit lift them up. May they open your word. May they hear perhaps these words right now online or, or later or from somewhere else. Father, just encourage them. Let them feel the light shining in their lives and, and allow them to feel the warmth of that truth. And from all this, Father, help us here at Hope be the light that you want us to be here in West Salem. Continue to do your work here. Continue to build your church here. Help us be the church you want us to be. And most importantly, Father, above all things, allow us to be faithful in this work, seeking to glorify you above all things and before all things. Especially with Christmas coming, Father, help us stay focused on you. Help us stay faithful to this task, to this commission of making disciples, no matter the cost. And help us remember that the Spirit is within us and your Son is with us to the end of the age until you send him back, Father. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.